Third Lecture, Part 1 of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J. M. Kennedy. Third Lecture, Part 1. Delivered on the 27th of February, 1872. Ladies and gentlemen, at the close of my last lecture, the conversation to which I was a listener, and the outlines of which, as I clearly recollect them, I am now trying to lay before you, was interrupted by a long and solemn pause. Both the philosopher and his companions sat silent, sunk in deep dejection. The peculiarly critical state of that important educational institution, the German public school, lay upon their souls like a heavy burden, which one single, well-meaning individual is not strong enough to remove, and the multitude, though strong, not well-meaning enough. Our solitary thinkers were perturbed by two facts. By clearly perceiving on the one hand that what might rightly be called classical education was now only a far-off ideal, a castle in the air, which could not possibly be built as a reality on the foundations of our present educational system, and that, on the other hand, what was now, with customary and unopposed euphemism, pointed to as classical education, could only claim the value of a pretentious illusion, the best effect of which was that the expression classical education still lived on and had not yet lost its pathetic sound. These two worthy men saw clearly, by the system of instruction in vogue, that the time was not yet ripe for higher culture, a culture founded upon that of the ancients, the neglected state of linguistic instruction, the forcing of students into learned historical paths, instead of giving them a practical training, the connection of certain practices encouraged in the public schools with the objectionable spirit of our journalistic publicity. All these easily perceptible phenomena of the teaching of German led to the painful certainty that the most beneficial of these forces which would have come down to us from classical antiquity are not yet known in our public schools. Forces which would train students for the struggle against the barbarism of the present age, and which will perhaps once more transform the public schools into the arsenals and workshops of this struggle. On the other hand, it would seem in the meantime as if the spirit of antiquity and its fundamental principles had already been driven away from the portals of the public schools, and as if here also the gates were thrown open as widely as possible to the bee-flattered and pampered type of our present self-styled German culture. And if the solitary talkers caught a glimpse of a single ray of hope, it was that things would have to become still worse that what was as yet divined only by the few would soon be clearly perceived by the many, and that then the time for honest and resolute men for the earnest consideration of the scope of the education of the masses would not be far distant. After a few minutes' silent reflection, the philosopher's companion turned to him and said, You used to hold out hopes for me, but now you have done more, you have widened my intelligence, and with it my strength and courage. Now indeed can I look on the field of battle with more hardihood, now indeed do I repent of my too hasty flight. We want nothing for ourselves, and it should be nothing to us how many individuals may fall in this battle, or whether we ourselves may be among the first. Just because we take this matter so seriously, we should not take our own poor selves so seriously. At the very moment we are falling, someone else will grasp the banner of our faith. I will not even consider whether I am strong enough for such a fight, 
whether I can offer sufficient resistance. It may even be an honorable death to fall to the accompaniment of the mocking laughter of such enemies, whose seriousness has frequently seemed to us to be something ridiculous. When I think how many of my contemporaries prepared themselves for the highest posts in the scholastic profession, as I myself have done, then I know how we often laughed at the exact contrary, and grew serious over something quite different. Now, my friend, interrupted the philosopher, laughingly, you speak as one who would fain dive into the water without being able to swim, and who fears something even more than the mere drowning, not being drowned, but laughed at. But being laughed at should be the very last thing for us to dread, for we are in a sphere where there are too many truths to tell, too many formidable, painful, unpardonable truths for us to escape hatred, and only fury here and there will give rise to some sort of embarrassed laughter. Just think of the innumerable crowds of teachers who, in all good faith, have assimilated the system of education which has prevailed up to the present, that they may cheerfully and without overmuch deliberation carry it further on. What do you think it will seem like to these men when they hear of projects from which they are excluded beneficio natural, of commands which their mediocre abilities are totally unable to carry out, of hopes which find no echo in them, of battles, the war cries of which they do not understand, and in the fighting of which they can take part only as dole and obtuse rank and file? But, without exaggeration, that must necessarily be the position of practically all the teachers in our higher educational establishments. And indeed, we cannot wonder at this when we consider how such a teacher originates, how he becomes a teacher of such high status. Such a large number of higher educational establishments are now to be found everywhere that far more teachers will continue to be required for them than the nature of even a highly gifted people can produce. And thus, an inordinate system of undesirables flow into these institutions, who, however, by their preponderating numbers and their instinct of simili simili gode, gradually come to determine the nature of these institutions. There may be a few people, hopelessly unfamiliar with the pedagogical matters, who believe that our present profusion of public schools and teachers, which is manifestly out of all proportion, can be changed into real profusion, an uberatus ingeni, merely by a few rules and regulations, and without any reduction in the number of these institutions. But we may surely be unanimous in recognizing that by the very nature of things only an exceedingly small number of people are desired for a true course of education, and that a much smaller number of higher educational establishments would suffice for their further development, but that, in view of the present large numbers of educational institutions, those for whom in general such institutions ought only to be established must feel themselves to be the least facilitated in their progress. The same holds good in regard to teachers. It is precisely the best teachers. Those who, generally speaking, judged by a high standard are worthy of this honorable name, who are now perhaps the least fitted in view of the present standing of our public schools for the education of these unselected youths, huddled together in a confused heap but who must rather, to a certain extent, keep hidden from them the best they could give, and, on the other hand, by far the larger number of these teachers feel themselves quite at home in these institutions, as their moderate abilities stand in a kind of harmonious relationship to the dullness of their pupils. It is from this majority that we hear the ever-resounding call for the establishment of new public schools and higher educational institutions 
we are living in an age which by ringing the changes of its deafening and continual cry would certainly give one the impression that there was an unprecedented thirst for culture which eagerly sought to be quenched but it is just at this point that one should learn to hear aright it is here without being disconcerted by the thundering noise of the education mongers that we must confront those who talk so tirelessly about the educational necessities of their time then we should meet with the strange disillusionment one which we my good friend have often met with those blatant heralds of educational needs when examined at close quarters are suddenly seen to be transformed into zealous yea fanatical opponents of true culture i e all those who hold fast to the aristocratic nature of the mind for at bottom they regard as their goal the emancipation of the masses from the mastery of the great few they seek to overthrow the most sacred hierarchy in the kingdom of the intellect the servitude of the masses their submissive obedience their instinct of loyalty to the rule of genius i have long accustomed myself to look with caution upon those who are ardent in the case of the so-called education of the people in the common meaning of the phrase since for the most part they desire for themselves consciously or unconsciously absolutely unlimited freedom which must inevitably degenerate into something resembling the saturnalia of barbaric times and which the sacred hierarchy of nature will never grant them they were born to serve and to obey and every moment in which their limping or crawling or broken-winded thoughts are at work shows us clearly out of which clay nature molded them and what trademark she branded thereon their education of the masses cannot therefore be our aim but rather the education of a few picked men for great and lasting works we well know that a just posterity judges the collective intellectual state of a time only by those few great and lonely figures of the period and gives its decision in accordance with the manner in which they are recognized encouraged and honored or on the other hand in which they are snubbed elbowed aside and kept down what is called the education of the masses cannot be accomplished except with difficulty and even if a system of universal compulsory education be applied they can only be reached outwardly these individual lower levels where generally speaking the masses come into contact with culture where the people nourishes its religious instinct where it poeticizes its mythological images where it keeps up its faith in its customs privileges native soil and language all these levels can scarcely be reached by direct means and in any case only by violent demolition and in serious matters of this kind to hasten forward the progress of the education of the people means simply the postponement of this violent demolition and the maintenance of that wholesome unconsciousness that sound sleep of the people without which counteraction and remedy no culture with the exhausting strain and excitement of its own actions can make any headway we know however what the aspiration is of those who would disturb the healthy slumber of the people and continually call out to them keep your eyes open be sensible be wise we know the aim of those who profess to satisfy excessive educational requirements by means of an extraordinary increase in the number of educational institutions and the conceited tribe of teachers originated thereby these very people using these very means are fighting against the natural hierarchy in the realm of the intellect and destroying the roots of all those noble and sublime plastic forces which have their material origin in the unconsciousness of the people 
and which fittingly terminate in the procreation of genius and its due guidance and proper training it is only in the simile of the mother that we can grasp the meaning and responsibility of the true education of the people in respect to genius its real origin is not to be found in such education it has so to speak only a metaphysical source a metaphysical home but for the genius to make his appearance for him to emerge from among the people to portray the reflected picture as it were the dazzling brilliancy of the peculiar colors of his people to depict the noble destiny of a people in the similitude of an individual in a work which will last for all time thereby making his nation itself eternal and redeeming it from the ever-shifting element of transient things all this is possible for the genius only when he has been brought up and come to maturity in the tender care of the culture of a people whilst on the other hand without this sheltering home the genius will not generally speaking be able to rise to the height of his eternal flight but will at an early moment like a stranger weather driven upon a bleak snow-covered desert slink away from the inhospitable land you astonish me with such metaphysics of genius said the teacher's companion and i have only a hazy conception of the accuracy of your similitude on the other hand i fully understand what you have said about the surplus of public schools and the corresponding surplus of higher grade teachers and in this regard i myself have collected some information which assures me that the educational tendency of the public school must right itself by this very surplus of teachers who have really nothing at all to do with education and who are called into existence and pursue this path solely because there is a demand for them every man who in an unexpected moment of enlightenment has convinced himself of the singularity and inaccessibility of hellenic antiquity and has warded off this conviction after an exhausting struggle every such man knows that the door leading to this enlightenment will never remain open to all comers and he deems it absurd yea disgraceful to use the greeks as he would any other tool he employs when following his profession or earning his living shamelessly fumbling with coarse hands amidst the relics of these holy men this brazen and vulgar feeling is however most common in the profession from which the largest number of teachers for the public schools are drawn the philological profession wherefore the reproduction and continuation of such a feeling in the public schools will not surprise us just look at that younger generation of philologists how seldom we see in them that humble feeling that we when compared with such a world as it was have no right to exist at all how coolly and fearlessly as compared with us did that young brood build its miserable nests in the midst of the magnificent temples a powerful voice from every nook and cranny should ring in the ears of those who from the day they began their connection with the university roam at will with such self-complacency and shamelessness among the awe-inspiring relics of that noble civilization hence ye uninitiated who will never be initiated fly away in silence and shame from these sacred chambers but this voice speaks in vain for one must to some extent be a greek to understand a greek curse of excommunication but these people i am speaking of are so barbaric that they dispose of these relics to suit themselves all their modern conveniences and fancies are brought with them and concealed among those ancient pillars and tombstones and it gives rise to the great rejoicing when somebody finds among the dust and cobwebs of antiquity something that he himself had slyly hidden there not so long before one of them makes verses and takes care to consult hesychius's lexicon 
something there immediately assures him that he is destined to be an imitator of aeschylus and leads him to believe indeed that he has something in common with aeschylus the miserable poetaster yet another peers with the suspicious eye of the policeman into every contradiction even into the shadow of every contradiction of which homer was guilty he fritters away his life in tearing homeric rags to tatters and sewing them together again rags that he himself was the first to filch from the poet's kingly robe a third feels ill at ease when examining all the mysterious and orgiastic sides of antiquity he makes up his mind once and for all to let the enlightened apollo alone pass without dispute and to see in the athenian a gay and intelligent but nevertheless somewhat immoral apollonian what a deep breath he draws when he succeeds in raising yet another dark corner of antiquity to the level of his own intelligence when for example he discovers in pythagoras a colleague who is as enthusiastic as himself in arguing about politics another racks his brains as to why oedipus was condemned by fate to perform such abominable deeds killing his father marrying his mother where lies the blame where the poetic justice suddenly it occurs to him oedipus was a passionate fellow lacking all christian gentleness he even fell into an unbecoming rage when teresius called him a monster and the curse of the whole country be humble and meek was what sophocles tried to teach otherwise you will have to marry your mother and kill your fathers others again pass their lives in counting the numbers of verses written by greek and roman poets and are delighted with the proportions seven to thirteen equals fourteen to twenty-six finally one of them brings forward his solution of a question such as the homeric poems considered from the standpoint of prepositions and thinks he has drawn the truth from the bottom of the well with ava and kata all of them however with most widely separated aims in view dig and burrow in greek soil with a restlessness and a blundering awkwardness that must surely be painful to a true friend of antiquity and thus it comes to pass that i should like to take by hand every talented or talentless man who feels a certain professional inclination urging him on the study of antiquity and harangue him as follows young sir do you know what perils threaten you with your little stock of school learning before you become a man in the full sense of the word have you heard that according to aristotle it is by no means a tragic death to be slain by a statue does this surprise you know then that for centuries philologists have been trying with ever-failing strength to re-erect the fallen statue of greek antiquity but without success for it is a colossus around which single individual men crawl like pygmies the leverage of the united representatives of modern culture is utilized for the purpose but it invariably happens that the huge column is scarcely more than lifted from the ground when it falls down again crushing beneath its weight the luckless weights under it that however may be tolerated for every being must perish by some means or another but who is there to guarantee that during all these attempts the statue itself will not break into pieces the philologists are being crushed by the greeks perhaps we can put up with this but antiquity itself threatens to be crushed by these philologists think that over you easy-going young man and turn back lest you too should not be an iconoclast End of section five.